0: Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But in this podcast, we aren't exploring training. Instead, we're learning about ways in which horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people have land. And we need healthy pastures for our horses, so becoming better stewards of the land under our care is a win-win-win situation. It's good for our horses, good for us, and good for the planet. This week, I'm visiting with Navona Gallegos. Navona is a rider, an ecologist, and a farmer. She lives in New Mexico, so she's in a very beautiful, beautiful landscape, but one that is completely different from what I am used to here in, in upstate New York. So I was really looking forward to this conversation with Navona just because we're talking about such different landscapes. If you listen to Amanda Scott's podcast, Accidental Gods, you may have already heard Navona. She did two podcasts with Amanda. And when I listened to her talking about mycorrhizal fungi with Amanda, I knew I wanted to invite her to come share with us here on Horses for Future. And I was absolutely right. You're in for a great conversation. Let's begin with, I think probably with a little background, um, because you are a horse person and you have come from what sounds like a fairly traditional starting point in the competition world. So you are familiar with how horses are often managed which is poorly both from their point of view and the land's point of view. So would you like to just sort of jump in with a little bit of background and what got you to Look at things a little differently.
1: Yeah, super. So, I grew up uh, with horses, and my first intro to horses was through my aunt. And then um, she got me hooked, and you know, I had no idea what they were getting into. So, yeah, I had a really sweet childhood growing up with horses and you know, running around bareback across a lot of open country. And I really feel like that was one of the formative things in my life that got me really loving land and caring about wild and nature and interested in hearing the voices of nature and um, so I really right now my passion in life is soil and how we can mitigate climate change and this extinction event and just have more abundance in our lives through soil Um, and I really think that really credit horses for bringing to that Uh.
0: and i think that's one of the really important roles that horses play for us because in many ways it's becoming all too easy to never get out into nature and what horses do is they take us outside the pasture gate yeah 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 and so even you can come from very, very different political backgrounds. But when you get on the back of a horse and that horse carries you beyond the pasture gate into the natural world, it has uh, it has a, a, a power of influence that is really important.
1: Yeah, I agree. And it really brings us into our bodies. You know, when we're riding or just around horses, we have to, get out of our heads and really get in our bodies and our emotions. And there aren't a lot of things in life these days that are so reliable at
0: doing. that. And we get our hands dirty.
1: Yeah. We're around horses and
0: we're, you know, we're cleaning them and grooming them and we're getting all the dirt out of their coats. And then we've got this huge manure pile that we have to do something about and, Oh, let me make a garden, et cetera, et cetera, which takes us straight to soil. And we need to maintain decent pastures for our horses and which also takes us straight to the difference between soil and dirt, which I don't I don't think a lot of people uh, you know that's a distinction that not everybody makes mm-hmm.
1: and it's such an important one and so yeah my my background was started you know pretty rootsy and at home on the ranch riding around but then I got into jumping horses and I love 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 jumping and um yeah just the the whole endeavor and like the one mind sort of space you get into yeah. and adrenaline and all of that and so it took me into the competition world which I got really deep into and you know as a teenager I did high school online so I could travel and show and then I competed internationally and I started doing FEI Grand Prix's and got, you know, really deep into it in Europe. And it's just, it was like such a, um, such a juxtaposition from being at home bombing around on my pony bareback, yeah. you know, he's just out in the pasture and I go jump on his back and um, versus these competition horses, because there's so much money involved and so much just intensity around the whole thing. They're, you know, like bubble wrapped and yes. stalls and their separate paddocks and yeah. And it's, it's just super tough for them. And everyone's used to seeing the pastures that are in, you know, they're like these little paddocks and they're just little dirt lots. And um yeah, it's tough. And you see all this stress and lameness and ulcers and, you know, part of it is the, the isolation and the stress put on the horses. And the other part is, that you know, their microbiome isn't getting to, isn't fed because they're not in a biodiverse pasture with other horses um, and other animals and other plants. Right.
0: But it's a curious thing the way our minds work that we make competition the gold star, you know, the gold mm-hmm. standard. Uh, well, you know, this is how you care for this very expensive competition horse. And so that must be the best way, the right way, to care for horses in general because this is how it's done for these very expensive, very fancy horses where money is no object. So I should put my horse into a small paddock as well because I want I want I want the best for my horse and and so we end up with this very distorted view of how horses should be maintained. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah I think it's a really beautiful thing to start to unwind that because I think we we do it for horses and for ourselves because if we yes. start to think our horses and i think oh well you know what's what's good for them isn't being micromanaged and isolated and rolled so much and you know getting them back to what their wild life would have been like and i think doing the same for us is really important and all of that leads us back to to soil and healthy ecosystems
0: so so how did you begin to unwind that for yourself what took you down a different path because you could you could easily be a high-powered trainer at a high-powered barn with horses in small paddocks and ulcers in their tummies. Totally and
1: I was so in so during yeah my teens and early 20s before I was and during college I was really sort of wrestling with these existential crises about climate change and resources and how resource intensive horse showing was yes I loved it and my identity was really wrapped up in it and so it was sort of this growing up like coming of age process for me I guess of really stepping into my morality and who I was and yoga was a big part of that yoga and meditation yeah I just started I was competing at a pretty high level and it was really sort of the main thing in my life, but I just felt this, um, something wasn't quite aligned with it. And then I had this really special horse Quinn who I took to Europe and we were doing really well. And then I took a couple weeks off and I came back and he started stopping at the jumps and, um, And something about, you know, I'd had horses stop before and had dealt with that, but something about him refusing in that moment in my life really sort of brought me to this question of like, who am I to force this being to do this? Yeah. You know? And yeah, that whole summer I was sort of wrestling with that and looking at it and got to this place of, I, I have no right to impose my... My will on this being for recreation, yeah. <laughs> and that sort of heart deepening helped me step out of it, and that was a really big process because I'd really sort of hung my hat <laughs> on yeah. or showing, and and that's who I was, and then you know it created this void where I was like, oh my god, well who am I if I'm not this show jumper? And um, what came in was like I'm someone who loves loves nature, loves horses, loves land, and I really want to focus on creating situations for myself and for my loved ones, including the horses and dogs and humans in my life, where we can all have abundance and thrive and come together from a place of consent and joy, because we want to be together because we're forcing it.
0: Right, right. What a powerful place to come from, though, because you understand both both sides, really, of where people are in their this whole process in their lives, you know, you stood in that that world of it's about getting over the next fence, it's about being successful, and it's about having your identity really wrapped up in your your ability to do this amazing thing, which is mm-hmm. to ride these big, beautiful, powerful horses over these very, very complex courses and, and the thrill of that and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then to say, well, actually I walked away from that and I found something that filled my heart in a very different way. So as a, a someone who can sort of reach reach across that, what can seem like a great divide, and say, I, you know, I understand the world that you are in right now, that's filled with ribbons and a different set of values. But let me see if I can talk to you in a way that can soften your heart a little bit towards yourself, because I think sometimes when we start looking at this, where we are, we think, uh, you know, how can I, how can I change, without becoming angry at myself for what I for where I've been and Mm. and that's not useful that's not useful
1: yeah oh that's a that's a big part really like as I started to step out of it
0: just coming to
1: terms with my part and this whole industry I consider really exploitive you know that's if I'm talking to folks in it I wouldn't want to use blameful language but Really looking at all these horses who I love so much and at the time loved so much, and you know, they're my friends and you know, we're hanging out and I'm giving them treats and I'm so close to these horses, but I'm also keeping them separate. You know, a big part of that world is not letting the horses run around as a herd, right? Lest they get hurt, <laughs> and yeah, and just pushing a really stressful lifestyle on these beings. and coming to terms with that and really being able to forgive myself and love myself and forgive everyone involved and just see that it's not not what we should be doing. Um, but that being angry and blameful isn't
0: doesn't help.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Doesn't help. It doesn't it doesn't help the individual who is in that place and who's starting to feel Uh, as someone who teaches the positive reinforcement training and the clicker training, we often get people who are just who feel just so appalled and sad at what they have done in the past in terms of training. And and I I want to say never get mad at your stepping stones because they brought you to where you currently are. And, uh, you know, that's That's what you knew. It's what was part of the horse community. It's what we were all taught was how you handled horses. And so rather than being mad or being sad or you know, whatever those emotions are, it's like, okay, that was where that's where I was. And it's the Maya Angelou expression of when I was young, I did the best I could, and when I knew better, I I did better, which I've always loved. There are alternatives because you know, if if you're somebody who loves horses and has grown up in a world where what you do with horses is ride, and you think, well, if I take that out of the equation, you know, particularly the the very really high powered riding, then do, do I take horses out of the equation? And what we learn is, no, 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 no. You can, hey, you can still ride without being riding in a a way that exploits them. And there's a whole rich, wonderful world of interacting with horses, interacting with them as individuals, interacting with them as a herd, interacting with the land that they inhabit that is an incredibly rich experience.
1: Mm, That makes me tear up a little. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's because that interaction with horses is what really brings us to horses in in the beginning i think especially when we're kids and yeah. just you know like their soft noses and their breath and
0: yeah i was just thinking the same thing you know just that whole the horse who, whose face is is right down next to yours and you just smell their wonderful breath and uh, you know that that makes me teary <laughs> So we'll both get teary together. (laughs) There's so much more to horses than just putting a saddle on their back and having an adrenaline rush, which is a wonderful part of horses when you're doing it with the horse, but it's not the whole horse experience.
1: Totally. And I so went through that because I grew up with a pretty... you know, I was starting to do competitions and take lessons and all that, but I also was really lucky to be able to just have horses at home on pretty open land in New Mexico and was able to, you know, bomb around with my friends and ride their back and chase the train and really enjoy like a more, a less structured way of being with horses. And as I got deeper into the showing, it became this thing where I, yeah, really lost. I still love the horses and, you know, love hanging out with them but kind of lost touch with that core right and that's really what brought me to horses to begin with and i think what really brings us to them you know all of us who really want to be with horses are compelled by this love for for those beings but then it becomes at least for me in the competition world it got really just um industrialized like capitalized where i was you know didn't Um, care so much about the sweet interactions that was just like icing on the cake. But it, I got burnt out a couple times, and you know, talk to sports psychologists and get back into it. And you know, it just becomes this um, sort of myopic thing where you're just focused on the result.
0: Early on, when I was when I was starting to teach, I experimented with uh, having people send me their horses for training. And I discovered I did not like it because it felt like I was in an assembly line. Oh, I've got, you know, I've done this horse, now I've got to get to this horse and I have to get to this next horse. And it just felt like there was that pressure to get through the horses and to get it done. And I, I just found that I so much more enjoyed working with people and and sharing with them how to teach their how for them to teach their own horses rather than having them send me the horse to train because i did not like that assembly line aspect of it. it it felt as though it was going to disconnect me from the horses themselves
1: totally yeah i remember riding you know six or seven horses a day six days a week and just Trying to figure out how many horses I could show, and yeah. Catch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and you just stick draw reins on all of them just to make sure that they're in a frame, no matter what. Doesn't matter where they're at, <laughs> they're in their process. Oh gosh, yeah.
0: So a di- a different world entirely, and so now you've you've walked away from that and built a very different kind of world, and you live in New Mexico, which interests me because. You know, I've, I've been in the Southwest just a little bit, and it's an incredible landscape. But if I were to move to New Mexico, if I were to say, oh, I think, you know, I would love to live in the shadow of Santa Fe and, and Taos. What a wonderful part of the world. Uh, let me take my horses out there. I would have zero clue how to manage horses in the environment in which you live it is so very different from the very green environment where we have uh, plentiful rain and snow all winter, et cetera, et cetera. So tell me a little bit, just sort of in general terms, about how you manage horses in New Mexico in a sustainable way. It's a challenge.
1: (laughs) I'll just start with saying that it's a challenge because New Mexico's soil has been really depleted, like a lot of the soil across the continent. But because it's so arid here, it's a lot more pronounced. Whereas, yes, in, or you can still have, you know, a nice grassy ground cover, even if you don't have the meters of topsoil that were there a couple hundred years ago. But here we have a lot of dirt, which you pointed out the difference between dirt and soil, and dirt is just the the mineral, the sand, silt, and clay. And soil is this complex of the mineral, as well as lots of organic matter, carbon-based stuff, like plant roots and fungi and bacteria and bodies of animals and plants and all these substances that the fungi create, like called gamelin. (laughs) Yes,
0: yes, yes. Glomalin is when I first heard about that. It's like that is the neatest, neatest substance. (laughs) We will have to come back to that because I'm sure that's going to be a new for some for many people. That will be something that they have not heard about before, and they may not understand the significance of it because it's it's not been that long that we have known about that glomelin was a thing, that it existed.
1: Yeah, so I think just having sort of a basic picture of what soil is and how it functions really helps us think about how we can keep horses in a sustainable way. Because what happens out here a lot is that people have their horses in a pasture, and even if it's a pretty big pasture, um, a lot of folks don't do rotational grazing and, um, And then the pastures just get totally overgrazed and turn into these really compacted dirt lots. Yeah. Well, out here mostly kind of accept that and just say, okay, well, you know, the horse paddock is just dirt and whatever trees are left, whose bark has been stripped off because the horses are bored. (laughs) Yes. But, But what soil is, is this engine that cycles nutrients and those nutrients are mostly carbon and then the other nutrients and plants and manure and the soil organisms so the fungi the bacteria the protozoa the nematodes the arthropods all the little organisms and the fungi are not so little because they can actually form these huge fungal mats that are miles long they're decomposing you know whatever is in the soil and as they're decomposing, they're also composing these molecules that hold the soil together. So like we mentioned the glomalin or the humic substances and think of those things that the fungi make as the building blocks or like the bricks of a house that create the soil and they allow, rather than having just totally compact dirt, which is what we find in a lot of horse paddocks, the soil with structure allows oxygen Gases and liquids, so mostly oxygen and water, is what we care about, to get a lot deeper into the soil. And that allows plant roots to get deeper. And we have this amazing sponge structure that can hold water and hold a lot more nutrients. And in addition to helping plants grow, it also filters water. So the water that comes through it isn't um, just running into rivers and then the ocean with a ton of organic matter. Where it doesn't need to be it keeps the organic matter on the land where we want it and filters the water and so we have cleaner cleaner ecosystems as well um but yeah in order to to have that soil we have to feed those organisms that create it you know so just like when we're tending to our horses we're thinking about what their needs are their needs for for food and for shelter and for water and temperature needs. So all these organisms in the soil, especially the fungi, and it's easiest if we just focus on the fungi because if the fungi are happy, everybody else is everybody. happy. Okay. We can have a bacterial soil that's kind of poor functioning, which is to say it's not holding a lot of water. It's not um, allowing a lot of gas exchange. It's not cycling a lot of nutrients, but it has a lot of bacteria. Um, but if we have fungi, then the bacteria are happy. And all the other little critters that swim around in the soil are also happy. So, so if we're thinking about what the fungi need, they um, respire just like us. They breathe oxygen, so they need gas exchange. or they need a soil that's not totally compact and anaerobic. And they decompose cellulose, which is the plant matter that we see, like in hay, you know, leaves and straw. Okay. <laughs> And they also decompose lignin, and they're some of the only organisms on earth that can decompose lignin, which is wood. And so if we're wanting to feed the fungi, one of the fastest ways we can do it is to mulch with wood mulch. Um, and that creates the, the niche that the fungi can start to work in because A, it's their food, B, it covers them from the sun, so they're not getting fried by UV rays. It keeps the soil in a more, it, it keeps the soil temperature from variating as much. So it's um, yeah, a little less cold, a little less hot and okay. it also moisture on the soil longer. So yeah, one of the first steps that we can do is just covering the earth and adding a lot of fungi foods. So cellulose and lignin. And so the way that a lot of people or I guess the most successful thing I've seen is to mulch with wood chips or shavings or whatever. but getting wood in there is important even though your horses aren't eating it. they're stomping down and and then also to just be spreading a bunch of straw and hay and you know your horses can eat some of it, they can trample some of it and um, just letting that decompose. So covering the ground is really the first step. And then once we start to get some grass growth and some more plant biodiversity, which is what we want, more roots in the ground, feeding the fungi, then the other step is um, the rotational grazing. So allowing the pastures to rest.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and <laughs> I went off on that. I'm sure maybe you want to get a little more specific about all those pieces. Well, so in New
0: Mexico, when you're uh, doing rotational grazing, how large a pasture are you talking about? For So if you had a, a herd of, say, we'll say four horses, five horses, how much land would you need in New Mexico to maintain healthy pastures? And of course, I know that depends on where you are in New Mexico, because at different elevations, you get different rainfalls, et cetera, et cetera. But in general terms, what are you talking about for rotational grazing?
1: So it depends how hands-on you want to be, because you can do these high-impact, short-duration grazing events. Yeah. We'll do those with cattle, um, goats or sheep. And... That's kind of a quicker thing where you come in, you bring the animals in for about a week, and they the goal is for them to eat maybe a third of the grass and trample about half of the grass and poop and pee and bring in the organisms that are in their guts. And then you take them off of it, and then you might leave that area for a year. Um, and so that's a model that we see on big ranches, and that might be a little tougher for um for horse keeping but my experience so i've had five horses on a 200 acre pasture for about six years and they've just sort of been parked and retired out there those guys yeah and gotten overgrazed and i was surprised actually that five horses could do that but it's really gotten Trampled and overgrazed and areas where there's erosion gotten more pronounced um, from their tracks. And so what we're doing is we're taking them off of there. And just because of the nature of our ranch, it used to be a cattle ranch. So there's a lot of big pastures, um, not smaller paddocks. So we're kind of looking at it on a yearly basis where we're moving them off of that pasture and we're doing a bunch of mulching and seeding with a lot of diverse seeds. So not just grasses, but also lots of Wildflowers and wild legumes, and doing some erosion control with rock work and that kind of thing, and just really rehabbing that pasture and taking them to another pasture that's about 100 acres, and they'll probably be there for about a year, and then, you know, we're lucky that we have another pasture we can take them to, and so it's going to be sort of a yearly rotation, and we're able to do that because we have these big spaces, but if you're looking at smaller paddocks, then it's sort of a fact it can be. A faster rotation, right. right? And sometimes you have to just have that sacrifice paddock, where if all of your paddocks are rehabbing, then you just take them to that dirt lot and <laughs> bring them toys and whatever to
0: keep them entertained. I guess. Yeah, because the, the thought of you know two hundred acres of pasture for the horses out here is, well, you know two hundred acres. Here is a huge amount of land, and generally, you're you're either uh, a dairy farmer whose dairy farm is collapsing, uh, you know, up north, and you're you're hoping somebody will come and buy it from you, or you're somebody very rich from New York City who has bought, um, you know, 300 acres and has their their gentleman's farm on it, and the rest of us have 20 acres, 30 acres, and that's a lot of land or we have 5 acres and some of that is is house and driveway and other things and not not pasture so the that's why i say the contrast in the geography is huge but the mm-hmm. principles are all the same you know the the principles are exactly the same armor the soil that was you know gabe brown from dirt to soil that was his first thing armor the soil cover the soil it was so interesting this weekend. So, in the the drive from uh, into town from the barn, uh, I go past some cornfields, and cornfields. You know, that's all relative as well. If I were out in Iowa, it would be fields as far as the eye could see. Here, cornfields are little postage stamps, but they're still, you know, considered large areas of of acreage. And this, they've been through the spring. They've been fallow ground, which means that the weeds have, what we would call weeds, have come in. And they've been this mixed herbaceous growth, a nice biodiversity in these fields. And this weekend, the farmers went in with their plows and plowed up all of that beautiful, organic, all of that life. And they broke up all of the the fungal networks and they compacted the soil with their big heavy machines and it just felt so sad you know in past years i might not have thought about it but now i'm really looking at it with such different eyes and and that's one of those those questions in terms of how do we get this information out there so when that farmer went in and broke the soil up what was he doing to the fungus what's the effect that whether you're in new york state or iowa or you know who knows where what is the effect on the fungus that that is that that has this is such an important and interesting question And I'm going to make you wait until next time to hear Navona's response. The relationship between mycorrhizal fungi and plants is fascinating. The more I learn, the more fascinated I become. And so that's where we're going to head next time. We're going to really dive down, no pun intended, but we're going to dive down deep and look at the role that fungi play in the soil. And remember... This is one area where we really can make a difference in the climate change crisis. The more we learn, the more we'll be able to find ways that really do make a difference.